Morning, church. Good morning, church. Hey, thank you very much. We're in the book of Deuteronomy this morning, have been for some time, hopefully finish up before Advent. Turn with me in your copy of the scripture to Deuteronomy chapter 19. It'll be on the screen, but uh, I'm going to encourage you to underline a couple words here and there. So it'd be great to have your copy of God's word open as we make our way through. If you're a guest, my name's Kelly. I serve as senior pastor. It's a delight to have you worshiping with us this morning. We'd ask that you not leave empty-handed. We have a little book that talks about our focus as a church. We'd love for you to have this little book. You can pick it up in the Welcome Center, which is just across the foyer. The Welcome Center, there's a welcome booth there. Books are there. Grab yourself a book. It'll help you get to know us a, a little bit better. It has some of my own story in it as I uh, grew in faith and would love for you to have a copy of that. What else? Oh, special welcome to Wheaton parents. I understand it's parents weekend and uh, we're glad you're here. Yeah. We consider it a special privilege to care for Wheaties, but you should know the Wheaties care for us as well. First service, I saw half a dozen of them headed downstairs to care for our kiddos, and 30-some-odd of them work in our recess and reckless ministries, our junior and senior high ministries. So they minister to us. Yeah, we love to minister to them. I should say as a parent, I, I know what it is to send your kid off uh, across the nation to college. We sent our middle one to Biola in, outside LA, and she will, graduated and will not come home, uh, which is all good. I get it. So it's a, it's a blessing uh, to have your kids with us, and um, we prize them. Uh, part of finding a church home includes giving financially. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. For all of us, whether we're a first-time guest or a long-time attender, one of the best ways to feel connected to the people of God, to the purposes of God, and to the person of God himself is to invest our resources in what matters to God. We'd encourage you to, as quickly as possible, if you're a guest, begin contributing. It's the best way to tell if this is where God has you as you invest your resources in what God is doing um, Wherever you're going to church, whatever, uh, wherever your fellowship is, you should be investing in God's work. The easiest way to give is to give online. About 90% of us do that. Address is up there. You can give online. If you came prepared to give this morning, just drop it in the black box out in the foyer. We haven't passed a plate since the beginning of COVID. I'm in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 1. When the Lord your God has destroyed the nations whose land he has given you, when you have driven them out and settled in their towns and houses, then set aside for yourselves three cities in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess. Determine the distances involved and divide into three parts the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance so that a person who kills someone may flee for refuge to one of these cities. This is the rule concerning anyone who kills a person and flees there for safety. Anyone who kills a neighbor unintentionally, without malice or forethought. For instance, a man may go into the forest with his neighbor to cut wood, and as he swings his axe to fell a tree, the head may fly off and hit his neighbor and kill him. The man may flee to one of these cities and save his life. Otherwise, the avenger of blood, and if you're an underliner, Underline avenger of blood. 
Otherwise, the avenger of blood might pursue him in a rage, overtake him if the distance is too great, and kill him even though he's not deserving of death, since he did it to his neighbor without malice of forethought. This is why I command you to set aside for yourselves three cities. If you're joining us for the first time, we're making our way through Deuteronomy slowly. Deuteronomy is the account of God preparing Israel to enter the promised land. Up to this point, the Israelites had wandered in the wilderness for some 40 years. But they're about to cross the Jordan River. And as they shift from wanderers in the wilderness to, as today's passage says, inheriting other people's towns, other people's houses, and becoming city dwellers, from wanderers to city dwellers, they'll need to establish order for their nation. Last week we read the leadership that God had ordained in Israel as they began to to establish a kingdom, as they moved into the land. There was a particular leadership ordained by God. It's on the screen. God ordained judges, straightforward, right, to adjudicate civil, uh, civil and criminal activity. He ordained that kings would oversee the chaos in the land and administer uh, order. They'd govern. Priests would minister before the Lord, whether in the tabernacle or the temple, atoning for the sins of the people. And prophets were to give direction in how to live godly lives. We don't live in ancient Israel, but we can appreciate God's provision to Israel of this four-part leadership in that it reminds us of God's provision for us through Jesus Christ. I noted last week that a part of the New Testament reality in which we live and celebrate this morning is that Christ fulfills each of these roles in our lives. He is the judge of all humanity. Christ is. Entrusted by God with this responsibility. He's the king of kings. The one who rightly inherits the throne of David and sits on it eternally. He is the priest of God, atoning for sin through his sacrificial death on our behalf. He is the prophet, and the final one, I should say, speaking to us about how to live godly lives and honor him with our lives. In today's passage, there is a a similar reminder, a similar overlay between Old Testament realities and New Testament realities realities, as we'll see that God's directive for Israel to establish cities of refuge reveals to us his character as a defender of justice, as well as a redeemer of the guilty, which will ultimately remind us of our provision in Christ, as well as our role as God's people. There's a lot there. We're going to see God's character in the city of refuge. We're going to see God's person revealed in Christ through the cities of refuge. And we're going to learn something about our role as God's people in today's passage. First, let's make sure we understand the Old Testament context and do our best to bridge it to New Testament realities. The next few chapters of Deuteronomy deal with a wide variety of legal topics, with a few of the topics receiving a deeper dive. Chapter 19 is one of those deeper dives. The focus of chapter 19, at least the first 13 verses, and I only read the first seven, the the overall view of chapter 19 is securing justice. God values justice. 
you can understand how securing justice is essential to establishing Israel as a new nation, inheriting a, a new land and, and setting up their kingdom. They want and need to be, for their own sake and for their God's glory, a just community. And so he gives specific instructions through Moses on what to do in the case of homicide. Whether it's unintentional homicide, we call it manslaughter. Someone loses their life, but no one meant to take it. Or intentional homicide, what we call murder. Someone with forethought and malice took another man's, uh, person's life. The instructions are that when Israel enters Cana, they're to designate three cities to serve as places of refuge for anyone who accidentally took another person's life. The three cities were to be geographically spread out, makes sense, from one another so that they wouldn't be hard to reach from anywhere in the country. The goal was that no matter where you lived, with just a little bit of effort, you could get to one of these safe places, these sanctuaries for protection. On the screen is a picture of the locations of the and the names of the three cities that were set up on the west side of the Jordan. That is, as they crossed the Jordan into the Promised Land, they set up Hebron, Shechem, and Kadesh. Uh, we know from Deuteronomy chapter 4, several chapters earlier, that God ordained and Moses established three cities of refuge on the east side of the Jordan as well, because some of God's people settled on the eastern side of the Jordan, Bazar, Ramoth, and Golan. So six cities total were going to be these cities of refuge. Moses gives a pretty straightforward example of how these might be utilized, why these might be needed. If two men are in the forest cutting trees, one man swings an axe and accidentally kills his buddy, no one else is around to witness the fact that it was an accident, then the killer, albeit accidental killer, can find a safe place if he's accused of murder. Play it out a little further in your mind's eye. Suppose the axe swinger goes back into town, reports his buddy's death. The family is not at all warm to the news, but antagonistic. They don't believe his story. They demand his life for the life of their deceased relative. Remember, that was the law established by Moses. Life for life, tooth for tooth, eye for eye, foot for foot, even the law said. This law, in fact, is repeated at the end of today's chapter. It's on the screen. Show no pity. In other words, keep the law. Show no pity. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Why was life for life the rule of God for ancient Israel? Because human life is precious. It's precious because each person is made in the image of God. We read in Genesis, first book in the Bible, early in that book, chapter 9, whoever sheds human blood by humans shall their blood be shed. That is life for life. For in the in Why? For in the image of God has God made mankind. Life is precious because everybody in the room is an image bearer. So when the axe swinger realizes he's not going to get a fair trial in his own town, knowing that the law is life for life, but that he didn't mean to kill his buddy, he could flee to a city of refuge for protection from the relatives, actually from the relative, the avenger of blood, who might be seeking his life. Once he made it to a city of refuge, the law was that no one seeking justice for the wrongful death of a relative could enter the city of refuge and take 
revenge. It's spelled out in Numbers 35 as well as Joshua chapter 12. If they did enter the city and take or pursue the life of someone who had had taken a life of their relative, then they too are breaking the law. They're committing a crime. Instead, it was the job of the elders in these cities to judge the matter, hearing both sides, weighing guilt and innocence, and, and making a, a verdict about whether or not this was manslaughter or murder, and then acting accordingly. God's word this morning is intensely practical. Now, interestingly, each of the cities of refuge was a Levitical city. This is no small matter, meaning a city that had been given by God to the priests of God. That is, the community, remember there were 12 tribes in Israel, one of the tribes is the tribe of Levi, right? The tribe of Levi is set apart to care for the place of worship and the process of worship. The place being either the tabernacle, later the temple, the process being the atonement process of sacrificing animals. So we've got priests in these cities. Each of these cities is a Levitical city. This means that you have people fleeing for safety, needing justice rendered to towns inhabited by those charged with atoning for sin. It's also important to understand the avenger of blood. This isn't just the crazy uncle who's become unhinged because someone in his family has suffered a wrongful death. So often I think we read of the avenger of blood and we think, oh, we, everybody's got one of those in their family. Someone who's going to lash out in rage and there's going to be a foot race to the closest city of refuge. And I hope he can run faster than Uncle Fester. It's not at all what's going on here. The avenger of blood is a legal term. It was recognized as a particular position when within the ancient Israel. This patriarch was the male responsible for protecting the family from injustices. Why is this role needed? It was needed because there were no police in ancient Israel. Remember, by God's sovereign ordaining, there were at least four key roles in Israel. Judges, kings, prophets, priests. But there were no police per se. There was certainly an army that was raised up when needed, but it fell on local families and tribes to defend the rights of their families. So within each of the 12 tribes of Israel, every family within that tribe would have a designated avenger of blood. In fact, some families would have multiple if it was a large family. If you're familiar with the biblical narrative, Abraham played this type of role in his uh, nephew Lot's life. As Lot is captured and carried off by foreign enemies, Abraham pursues those enemies, rescues Lot, returns him to his proper place, making sure that justice is done, securing, defending the rights of his extended family. That's how Abraham functioned in that case. So the avenger of blood would be called upon to pursue someone whom the family believed murdered a relative. But what is most interesting about this role was that seeking justice for the family was not his only responsibility. That same patriarch responsible for avenging wrongs suffered by the family was also responsible for redeeming the lives of family members in trouble 
Say, for example, slavery. If a family member got in over their head, couldn't pay their debts, the debt collector came to the house, knocked on the door, and said, hey, you got to pay, and, and the family member said, I can't pay, all I've got is my life and time to offer. It's called debt slavery, right? Well, then it would fall upon the patriarch of the family to redeem the life of that person. It was also the responsibility of this patriarch to make sure the land apportioned to the family didn't leave the family, such that if someone got into trouble financially and couldn't care for their land, it would be that patriarch's responsibility to make sure the land didn't get sold off, but to care for the family, purchase the land if need be, because every tribe is given a particular piece of property, every family within the tribe settles a particular plot of land, and we need to keep the land in the family. It's an agrarian society. It's the way that we feed our family. And so this patriarch would be responsible for that as well. Finally, this patriarch would be responsible for marrying a relative's widow and raising up a deceased relative's children. In fact, so all-encompassing were the responsibilities of this role that in other Old Testament passages, the Hebrew word translated here as avenger of blood is translated in other places as guardian redeemer. Exact same Hebrew word. It's on the screen for us this morning. Deuteronomy 19.6, the avenger, Gael, I'm sure I'm butchering that, is translated avenger of blood, but you get to Ruth chapter 2, verse 20. It's, it's translated as kinsman or guardian redeemer. If you're a student of the Bible, leave that up there just for a minute. If you're a student of the Bible, you might be familiar with the term guardian redeemer, as it appears in one of the Bible's most beloved stories. In this morning's sermon, we have all the earmarkings uh, of really great literature. I don't know if it'll be a great sermon, but it'll be great literature. We have manslaughter, potentially. We have murder. We have a love story. This same word is used to describe the role that Boaz played in Ruth and Naomi's lives. It's a powerful story of redemption. As Naomi and her daughter-in-law Ruth returned to Israel impoverished, destitute, literally their lives are in jeopardy, and Boaz shows up. The Gael, the guardian redeemer, and the avenger of blood, if need be. Naomi had left Israel earlier in her life, her husband then alive, two sons in tow. They leave Israel because there's this drought, and they go to a foreign country. The boys marry, but the husband and both boys die away outside the promised land. Naomi returns home by herself with one daughter-in-law, Ruth. They return penniless, impoverished. They would have remained that way living hand-to-mouth, right, and unless somebody cares for them. And Boaz acts on Ruth's part, even decides to marry her, and brings her out of destitution, saves her from all the vulnerabilities that impoverishment would foist on widows in the ancient world. It's a beautiful story of redeeming, redemption as Boaz plays the role he's meant to play of redeemer. 
And if you've studied scripture in depth, you've probably heard people make the comparison between the role that Boaz played in Ruth's life as guardian redeemer and the role that Christ plays in our lives as we trust him for salvation. And I would say, if you're here this morning, you're checking out the claims of Christ, welcome. We're glad you're here. This is a safe place to check out the claims of Christ. We'd urge you to trust in Christ this morning. Why? Because Jesus redeems us from our poverty brought by sin. Boaz's care of Ruth and Naomi is a beautiful picture of how Christ cares for us. Destitute, doomed, penniless, powerless against sin, Christ steps in and redeems our lives, making a sacrificial atonement for us. Boaz sacrifices to care for Ruth and Naomi. Christ has sacrificed to care for us. It's not coincidence that we're called the bride of Christ, right? And he's the groom, just as Boaz cared for Ruth. So how is it that the same Hebrew word has such a broad range of meaning? How can it be translated avenger of blood in Deuteronomy 19 when talking about taking someone's life potentially? And a guardian redeemer in Ruth chapter, in, in the book of Ruth, when it's this love story of redemption. It can be translated as both because avenger of blood is not simply revenge. That's not the role of this patriarch. The avenger of blood is focused on justice. Not simply meeting out revenge. In fact, revenge is what God is meaning to protect against here. He's trying to prevent this. Too often, the law of eye for eye is misunderstood as a callous legal code of tick for tack. You take my eye, I'm taking your eye. But it was actually aimed at setting up retributive limits in a world that was fueled by revenge. The goal was actually to undermine a culture of escalating tension in a world that could have easily fast become blind, <laughs> lame, you know, both losing both feet, both hands, both eyes. If you gouge out my eye, then I'm making you blind. But Israel was to be different as a nation, retributive limits. Israel was to be a nation guided by the character of God. What is that character? Who is our God? In Exodus 34, we read he's compassionate. He's gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in love and faithfulness. He maintains love to a thousand generations, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. In other words, he's a God of justice and mercy. Israel was to be a nation guided by the character of God, which could hold in tension both mercy and justice, and we actually see this written within the charter given for the cities of refuge. Moses knew that the avenger of blood might fly off the handle. He may become furious, enraged, and revenge might fill his heart. And revenge is not what's going to serve this new nation well. Justice is what serves us well. Mercy and the coupling of those together, that's what serves a nation well. So set up these cities to secure justice and mercy. In fact, you may remember in Scripture, 
Deuteronomy chapter 32, Romans chapter 12, God says, revenge is mine. Leave room for God's wrath in the, in the move of justice among you. Let me worry about tit for tat. And you do your best to focus on showing justice and mercy. So if the avenger of blood flies off the handle in rage, the accuse, they accuse need a safe place where they can run. They need a place that would minister truth and love. A place charged with seeking both mercy and justice. I wonder, where might people find the administration of both mercy and justice today? Well, I hope it would be in our judicial system. I also hope it would be in our churches. In ancient Israel, it was the place where the priests lived, where the, the Levitical cities were the cities of refuge. In our modern world, when people come to the church, globally I'm speaking, but certainly locally at 501 Hillside, when people land here, when they come here, running from their sin, whether intentional murder or unintentional manslaughter, what do they meet with when they come in here with their sin? And I hope they meet with a priestly community who can talk about the need for justice and can show mercy. A community that's shaped by the character of the God who's caring for us compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Lord knows that's who I want to meet when I show up on Sunday morning. Who doesn't turn a blind eye to sin, but shows love to a thousand generations. In our modern world, I believe that the church is a good correlation to cities of refuge. Paul described the church as the pillar and foundation of truth in the world. I like to call the church God's minivan. Not real sexy, but the one who's getting us to Christ, who's, who's ministering to us. We're to minister to one another the grace of God. Not giving permission to sin, but caring for one another, coming around each other. Like cities of refuge, which were Levitical communities, the church is a community of priests. First Peter chapter 2, verse 9, we are described as a royal priesthood. When people rub up against us, do they meet with the grace and the truth of God? We're charged with ministering to one another caring for those who are fleeing from their sin. We're to be safe space for sinners, not encouraging sin, but ministering to sinners. Our priestly ministry is overseen by the high priest, Jesus Christ, who has died for our redemption, setting us free from the penalty of sin. Whether we committed that sin knowingly, murder, or unknowingly, manslaughter, Christ has cared for us through his death. You know, it's interesting 
there's a fascinating finer point to Israel's law when it comes to cities of refuge. Those who found sanctuary in the cities of refuge uh, would have been those who, when the elders weighed the case, saw that, no, it was in fact manslaughter, and then the guilty, the one guilty of manslaughter, would have to stay in the city uh, for the foreseen future. It became like a prison of sort. And as long as that person stayed in the safe city, the sanctuary city, then the avenger of blood could not get at him. If the person left the sanctuary city, then the avenger of blood could take action because the person who had committed manslaughter had uh, wrongfully brought the death of one of their family members was not abiding by the law, not staying in the sanctuary city. There was one exception to the rule. Those found guilty of manslaughter could leave the city when, I love this, when the high priest, who was ministering at the time of their trial, died. So there was a limit to the time that someone would have to stay in a sanctuary city. They wouldn't have to live there the rest of their lives, assuming they could outlive the high priest. Folks, who's our high priest, according to Hebrews chapter 4? Christ is our high And what did Christ do for us? He's died for us. What's the effect? It sets us free from the penalty of our sin. That's who the church is to be. We're to be the safe place where sinners run. And they hear justice, culpability for their sin. They hear eye for eye. They hear tooth for tooth. They hear life for life. Then they hear about Christ. And then they say, well, I didn't mean to sin. And they say, well, the good news is, even if you don't mean it, Christ covers that sin. Whether intentional or unintentional, our high priest has died for us and we're set free not to continue in sin. May it never be, Paul says, not to continue in sin, but to live lives that honor God. So if Christ is our guardian redeemer, if he is who Boaz was to Ruth and Naomi, how can he both also be the avenger of blood? Because, folks, the law is, in fact, eye for eye. It's tooth for tooth. We'll, in fact, have to give an account for every foolish word we've spoken, every behavior that we have committed that's outside the character of God, that's what sin is, any behavior, whether thought, action, outside the character of God, we're culpable for, we're on the hook for. And Christ the judge has come and given his life. In the ministry of Christ, we see the perfect combination of grace and truth. He's both our kinsman redeemer, a human just as we are, and the avenger of blood, God himself in the flesh, and all who run to him experience redemption, experience his care. And the good news of the gospel is that the church is to be the place where people are running to hear this message. And folks, we're also to be running out into the community telling this message so that when people bump up against us and they get into our lives, they hear both grace and truth. 
They hear mercy and the call for justice. And they experience Christ in the goodness of God, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, maintaining love to a thousand generations. Does not leave the guilty unpunished. Let me pray for us. Father, I want to pray that uh, your, your ministry of grace would really run deep into our lives right now. I pray we'd be a community that sees our sin clearly and praises you that you have cared for us in our sinfulness. Pray we'd be a confessing community that we'd acknowledge our sin willingly and we would enjoy your care of us through Christ. And then I pray that we would be ministers of this grace and this truth out in the community. In Jesus' name, amen. Mark and Sue McAloose are going to be down front. They'd love to pray with you if you'd love prayer. I know in a room this crowded, and we have some 20, 25 people sitting in overflow, it can be hard to find the courage to get out of the pew or the chairs and come down front for prayer. There is, Lord willing, there's not a safer room in the room, in the world, than a room full of God's people to come forward for prayer. And so often, the same courage we're wanting to demonstrate out in the world, we get small opportunities to demonstrate the courage we need out in the world in a room full of God's people. For example, and your singing was so encouraging this morning. I love sitting over here because my, you can hear the singing of the people. One of the ways we demonstrate courage as God's people is to sing really loudly. The, the reason is because we have, a, we have a temptation to be timid in the world. The way to practice against timidity is to open your mouth in a room full of people that are learning to be bold. Another way is to step out of the, uh, the pew and to come forward for prayer. It, it's, a, it's a courageous moment. I know it's no small matter, and people have pressed us to say, why don't you put it at the back of the room so that people don't feel so on. I said, well, I'm not going to put it at the back of the room. In part, there's no room. But also, we need some courage. The room is full of, let's say, 350 people. Every one of us need, need prayer. So let me in, encourage you to, um, to come forward for prayer. Let's stand. We'll close in song.